This is the Lattice Training Podcast, where we bring you the best in climbing performance and training from the world's elite athletes, thought leaders, and coaches. Hi, everyone, and welcome to this Lattice Training Podcast. Today, I'm talking with Joy Callie Black. Joy is a strength coach for pregnant and postpartum climbers and is currently 10 months postpartum herself. She educates about the pelvic floor, strength training and breathing as they relate to training during pregnancy and after birth. In this podcast, we talk about diastasis recti. Diastasis is one of the most common terms we see online when looking into exercise during pregnancy and postpartum. However, as with many topics, the wealth of online information doesn't necessarily make it clear what it is and how best to climb and train during pregnancy and postpartum to minimize the impact and allow a good recovery. In this podcast, Joy explains what diastasis is and why it happens during pregnancy, some of the common misconceptions around diastasis. She explains the difference between coning and doming and what these signify. She talks us through how we can feel and monitor our own diastasis and the role of the deep core muscles in managing the stress on the linear elbow. Joy also does a practical exercise during this podcast, a breathing exercise that we can use to find our deep core. She talks about core training for climbers during pregnancy and postpartum in a more general sense, as well as hanging exercises and how we might modify these to help minimize the impact on our midline. She talks about some ways in which we can modify or find appropriate exercises, taking our diastasis into consideration. And we wrap up this conversation with some really great ideas for warming up before climbing to help connect to our breath and deep core. I hope you enjoy this podcast. Hey, Joy, and welcome back to the podcast with Lattice Training. I'm really excited to have you back on today. And we are going to be talking about diastasis recti. Yeah, no, I'm psyched. This is going to be really fun. So we've chatted for a little while um, trying to, to hook up to talk about this topic because there's a lot of confusion around diastasis recti, what it is, why it happens. Um, and I, I saw that you shared a post a while ago and it was based on, I think, either a DM that you had got from a climber or maybe an interaction with a climber that you were working with. And basically they were clearly really scared that climbing was going to rip their abs apart I think that was like the language and you shared this great post sort of diving into that phrase and kind of picking it apart and kind of unraveling some of that mystery and those misconceptions around diastasis recti so we're going to dive into this topic in a way that I really hope clears it up for people, but perhaps just to set the scene, what are the most common misconceptions you hear from people about diastasis? Mm, I love this. Yes. Um, so one misconception is that you can prevent it during pregnancy. You cannot prevent it during pregnancy. If you see any sort of program that is saying, hey, you know, $30, however many pounds you can prevent diastasis, it is essentially 
bullshit because that is not realistic. Um, we have research that tells us by the time of delivery, a hundred percent of women will have a bit of diastasis. So it is completely normal during pregnancy. Um, another misconception is that, um, exercise can fix it, uh, postpartum. So the reason this is a misconception is because exercise alone cannot fix it. So diastasis is really a, it is a local and a whole body problem. And by whole body, I mean kind of like breathing, kinetic chain. And there is also considerations that you do have to keep in mind for the abdominal wall. Uh, but you cannot just lay on the floor and do some crunches or dead bugs and fix diastasis. It doesn't work like that. So I think that would be kind of like two of the main takeaways that I would love for people to know just so that they can feel informed when they're looking at information or possible um, programs to buy and things of that nature. Awesome. Yeah, that really, um, that's a really good starting point. And I think we'll probably go into a lot more depth into those things to really like bust them. Um, so I guess we've, we've mentioned this kind of term diastasis a few times already now. And some people might actually be listening, being like, I don't actually quite know what you're talking about. <laughs> so you just want to start by describing what it actually is. You've obviously mentioned that by the full term of um, a pregnancy, basically 100% of people have it. Um, mm -hmm. And so we can kind of maybe imagine the process by which diastasis comes about. But mm -hmm. yeah, can you just give us a little deep dive into what it actually is? Yeah, I'd love to. And I think this is really important because it's one of those terms that kind of gets thrown out during pregnancy and you're not quite sure, should you be like scared of this? Is this something you need to know about? Should I be concerned? So um, hopefully this will be really helpful for the people that are listening. So I think first it would probably be important to just kind of like do a basic review of anatomy. Mm -hmm. When we are talking about diastasis, this is referring to your linea alba. Okay. And this is in your abdomen. So we're talking Talking, diastasis has to strictly do with core musculature. You have, we'll say, two layers to your core muscles. You have the anterior labor, which is your rectus abdominis muscles. Those are your six-pack muscles. And then underneath them, we have lateral abdominal muscles. So external obliques, internal obliques, and your transverse abdominis. Okay, so I want you to imagine we have kind of like that deeper layer of lateral muscles, the external internal obliques and the transverse abdominis, and they all kind of come together um, and they form what's called an aponeurosis. And that just basically means it's like a, a large uh, tendon sort of sheath. And then the rectus abdominis muscles, those are in front of those lateral abdominal muscles. And the rectus is actually enclosed in a rectus sheath that connects onto the aponeurosis, the connection of all of those lateral abdominal muscles. And this is what forms the linea alba. Okay. So it's like this, like joining of all of these abdominal muscles. And I think that's really important for everybody to understand because it's not just like this, 
nebulous line down the middle of your stomach that just kind of like is what is that this is actually what it is and you can think of it kind of like a tendon almost so like we have our achilles tendon or our bicep tendon uh but this is essentially a quote-unquote tendon down the middle of your abdomen and this is important because this is how our core musculature transfer load to each other it's how we generate power and things of that nature so that's like the purpose of it but what happens during pregnancy is our muscles literally have to change shape to accommodate a growing baby as the muscles change shape this linea alba this connective tissue and fascia it thins and widens to allow for growth and expansion of the abdomen so that is what is happening during pregnancy now clinically a diastasis if you want to have it um diagnosed per se it has to be at least two fingers width so that means between the two rectus muscle belly so those six-pack muscles you know you have like one on each side sort of if you were to put your two fingers, like your index and your middle finger in between those, it has to be at least two fingers width to be clinically diagnosed as a diastasis. If it's less than that, it's it's not clinically recognized as diastasis. That doesn't mean it isn't one, but just so, you know, because uh, we didn't want people to be as informed as possible, right? Um, now, the other thing to keep in mind is that you will never have abs that are like touching each other, right? So that's another kind of misconception is that they need to be touching each other to have no diastasis because you actually have to have room for that connective tissue in between the two sides of the rectus muscles. So like abs that touch each other, are, that's not a thing. We are always going to have a little bit of room in there. It's when we end up having too much room, so too much width, that we get what's known as a diastasis. Yes, that totally makes sense. And I actually really liked your description of the linear alba as, yeah, I guess almost like a tendon because you can totally imagine the core muscles on each side, essentially pulling on it to move you, like you mm -hmm. said, from, from side to side, something we are doing all the time in climbing. It's all so much about transfer of energy and force between different things. So mm -hmm. you can see that if that does become stretched, weakened, however you want to call it, it may lead to us struggling with some of those things that we want to do in climbing. Um, one thing I think is actually really interesting is that um, you can feel this yourself. I don't know, maybe you could just describe to people the way in which they could literally lie down right now and just have a little feel around and, and sort of feel what you're talking about. Yeah, yeah, this is really good to do. Um, even if you will never have children uh, or you, um, you know, or even in those like first few months of your pregnancy, you can always check for your diastasis. Now, if anyone newly postpartum is listening to this, I probably just wouldn't do it before six weeks because a lot of changes still go on. I always like to make that disclaimer because, uh, newly postpartum women have enough to worry about the width of your diastasis immediately after birth is not one. So please wait until about like six weeks or so. But all right. So to check it, you just lay down on the ground and then you bring your uh, feet up towards your um, glutes. So your knees are at like 90 degrees or so. And you want to do it two ways. 
So the first way you're going to do it without any sort of intentional tension or activation. So you're just going to barely lift your head up. It's not like a crunch. You should not lift your shoulders off the ground. You just barely lift your head up and you're going to check in three different spots. The first spot that you want to check is about two or three inches above your belly button. And you are going to have your index finger and your middle finger and you want to put them perpendicular to your belly button. So you don't want the index finger and middle finger like um, in a straight line that's like going up towards your chin. You want it like that. Um, you want it going wide across because we need to check the width of this. You're checking for the width, but you're also checking for the depth. It's very important to check for both. Okay. So your width is how many little fingertips can you get like kind of fit in between the two sides of your six pack muscles. You want to check two or three inches above the belly button. You want to check at the belly button and two or three inches below the belly button. Okay, so we have three different spots that we check. You can check for the width in each one of those different spots because you might find that it's different higher versus at the belly button and a little lower. And then for the depth, what we are looking for is how does it feel when you're pressing into it? So can your fingers just keep going and going and going and going? Or do you get met with a little bit of resistance, kind of like a trampoline? Because when we jump on a trampoline, it does have a bit of give, but then it bounces right back up. So you're just kind of looking for like the, the springiness or the resistance that you're met with at each spot. So you should check it once without doing any sort of intentional um, activation of any of your core. Then you can check it again with doing some intentional activation. So all that means is you would... Uh, put your head back down and you're going to open your mouth and exhale like fully, fully, fully all the air out. I want you to exhale until you're like, feel like you're about to cough almost. Um, and then you're going to lift your head again, the same distance and do that same check again. And you can see, does anything feel different? Do, do Did the distance in between the two rectus bellies change? Did the depth or the tension that you felt change at all? And it should change in the second scenario, it should change. Um, but that's just like one really simple way that you can literally check on yourself. And um, this can also really be useful for guys to check because a lot of guys can have a diastasis and they have no idea. And it's not going to present perhaps with the same uh, problems that it would with girls. But as we were just talking about, like the load transfer and energy transfer, like when we have an increased widening of the rectus distance, then that is going to mean slightly less efficient load and power transfer in between the two sides of the body. Yeah, awesome. Yeah, when I first did this, I was like, oh, wow, I can, it's just, it really helps alongside that really good explanation you gave to show you how it works, but it also gives you, which I'm sure we will come on to, this kind of very much like a, an explanation to how this connects to your breath and kind of engaging those deep core muscles and um, that change that you talked about between those two scenarios. Um, so sort of moving on from the term diastasis, which I imagine must be like one of the most common terms if you type into Google anything to do with kind of pregnancy or postpartum. Oh, yeah. Alongside that term, what we see a lot are the terms doming or coning. Um, mm -hmm. And can you just 
describe what those terms are referring to um, as well and why they are coming up uh, very mm -hmm. much when we are maybe looking at information about pregnancy um, and postpartum, especially with regards to exercise, I guess, and kind of mm -hmm. using our core. Yeah. So <laughs> coning and doming, some people use them interchangeably. They are not exactly synonymous to each other, but for the purposes of this conversation, I will explain the difference between the two, but just know that sometimes people use them meaning the same thing. It just, it just kind of depends. So coning, this is going to refer to pressure specifically leaking out of the linea alba. Okay. So if you think about those two six pack muscles on either side, and then coning would look like a little line coming up and through the middle of those. So it's almost like a little speed bump <laughs> in between your abs is the best way. Cause everybody knows what, is that what you guys call them over there? Yeah. Speed yeah, yeah. Okay. <laughs> I was just making sure I was like, Oh no, people would be like, what is she talking about? No, but speed bump. So a little speed bump in between your abs and it can be like a little one, or you may notice that it's like a much bigger speed bump, but that is coning. And it is basically the inability of the linea alba of that connected tissue to manage pressure. That's all that is. Now, doming is different. Doming is when the entire six-pack muscles basically are dominant over the transverse abdominis. This means that you get more of a bread loaf effect. So if you think about one of the times I see this the most is kind of like during leg lifts that I know like a lot of climbers like to do where you lay on your back and then you bring your legs, they're straight up into the air, at like 90 degrees. And then you bring them back down again. And you will notice that the abdomen does not stay flat. It, it literally kind of looks like a loaf of bread pops out the middle, but there's not a ridge. It's more of like a, uh, like a big hill that, <laughs> that goes from one side of the abdomen to the other. And what has happened is that the TBA, those deep core muscles, they are not turning on or not quite as much as the rectus muscles are. And those rectus muscles are just kind of being pushed out. So it's actually two different things, the coning and the doming, but they have similar ways of coming to be, if you will, because they both kind of have to do with pressure management and engagement of different core muscles. Um, so during exercise, we tend to see this definitely if you have a diastasis you will most likely see some coning during higher demand or higher intensity exercises. And that doesn't mean higher intensity, like running higher intensity could simply mean like a side plank is lower intensity. And then a uh, prone plank or one where you're facing the ground is higher intensity because it places a higher demand on the core. So it may be that uh, you can do the side plank just fine, but when we go and uh, do a plank with our head facing the ground, that that is too much and we're not able to control the coning during that exercise. So it really just depends. Now, the doming, you don't necessarily have to have a diastasis or you may have a diastasis and still see this happen. And you could also see both happen at the same time. Um, but the doming is, again, more of that like really kind of higher demand exercise on the core. And you're seeing that whole kind of muscle of the six pack come all the way up.
Did that answer the question? Yeah, yeah, that really makes sense. And I think this is where a lot of the work that, that you do sort of showing, explaining how the core is working very much as like a whole system, you know, like say the whole cylinder with kind of mm -hmm. pressure within it. And you can imagine how if you're on the side, the pressure and like force going outwards to the front where we know now that the linear Albert is, is less than if we are facing down to the ground and we have gravity there, like, you mm -hmm. know, sort of um, pulling on our core in, in the direction sort of through the linear Alba. And, mm -hmm. you know, I think you've touched on it there and I think we'll get on to some slightly more exercise specifics um, of um, kind of how to manage that pressure and maybe how best to manage it. But I wonder whether just um, before we move on to that, we know that we can have diastasis by the end of pregnancy. And we know mm -hmm. that after giving birth, we'll likely have one. And actually we probably don't want to worry about it much until like six weeks postpartum. Mm -hmm. What is the general timeline of the diastasis? Like what's that kind of journey through pregnancy and um, postpartum in terms of thinking about it, I guess. Um, and it might be that this is really different for everyone. And actually you just want to go through some of the symptoms or the things we might experience that might tell us that we have a diastasis that we want to consider in our exercise. Did that make yeah. sense? Mm -hmm. Yeah. 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 And if I miss any part of a question, just, just like <laughs> reel me back in and say like, Oh, well like touch on this. Um, so as far as timeline of diastasis, so, um, you know, it, it can vary, like you said, with individual because each pregnancy is unique and the way our bodies handle things is also unique. One really cool and important thing to keep in mind about diastasis is because it is connective tissue, there is also a large genetic component to connective tissue. So some people's connective tissue is just inherently a little uh, stronger than others. So they may not get the same effect um, as um, someone whose connective tissue just genetically is not quite as robust, I guess you could say. So there is this, that component too, that's just always important to consider as far as timeline goes. So we have some research that tells us at about six months pregnant, 40% of people will have a diastasis and then hundred percent at the time of delivery. And then about 60% still have it at six months or I'm sorry, six weeks postpartum. And then 32% at 12 months postpartum. So now the statistics I just gave you around 60% at six weeks and 32% at 12 months, that is with no intervention. So they did not do any sort of targeted breathing exercises or targeted strength work for the diastasis. So that's kind of like if you did nothing at all. But I think it's really important that we're seeing, you know, over half of women at six weeks postpartum have a diastasis. And, and this is important because we need to always keep in mind that muscles take time to heal. So your muscles literally changed shape over the course of your pregnancy. Pregnancy isn't just like a, you do it and then it just reverses itself automatically. Like muscles take time to adapt. And I think we know that if we think about, you know, strength training, like we would never expect to like, oh, I followed my plan for a week. Now I like meet all my goals. Like it doesn't happen like that. It takes a while. And sometimes it can take longer than others for certain sorts of strength adaptations, knowing that 
fascia generally takes lots and lots of small incremental progressive overloading um, to regain strength versus something like the hamstrings. They tend to adapt a little bit quicker. Um, we can think about, you know, even the fingers, they take a long time and it takes small bits of incremental loading. So just remembering that it is this, we really have to consider that we need that small incremental loading over time. And then also keeping in mind that, you know, per this study, almost a third of women still have some diastasis at one year postpartum. And I think that's important for managing expectations because there is so much of this expectation in our society right now of women having a baby and then just returning to looking like they never had a baby or everything returning to just fine within this really short amount of time. And it's just not realistic. I'm not saying it doesn't happen because of course there are some people who recover much faster than others. And there's some people who take quite a bit longer, uh, but just knowing that there is like research that supports, Hey, these things take a while. Uh, you know, for just like the muscles to adapt and become stronger again, and for that connective tissue to really be able to transfer load again, well, and things of that nature. Um, so things to look out for as far as diastasis. So, you know, some people will say, oh, well, um, I have back pain. So that must mean I have diastasis or my diastasis caused my back pain. Actually, we don't have any research to support this. Um, another thing to keep in mind is like during pregnancy, almost 80% of women complain of back pain. So it's like fairly common, the back pain. So we can't really say that diastasis is causal for the back pain. Um, I would, you know, this isn't like research based, but just in my mind, what I'm thinking is that when we have someone with diastasis, so let's say it's postpartum, we're dealing with the diastasis postpartum, and they're also having back pain. We know that diastasis is it's a local, but it's also a whole body problem. And they are likely not being able to activate some of the really important muscles like TVA, multifidi. Um, and they just have a general system weakness going on that is also contributing to the back pain. So I think that's something really important to consider. Um, we can't also say that, you know, pelvic floor problems are caused by diastasis or vice versa. But again, diastasis is a pressure management problem in a way and pelvic floor um, symptoms or dysfunctions have so much to do with how we handle pressure as well. So um, I think that there aren't really, besides the visual symptoms of the coning or doming, we can't say that like any of these other symptoms like pelvic floor or back pain are things to look out for as far as diastasis. But I think that any of those symptoms in themselves, like if you're seeing the visual coning or doming, then yes, like we need to address that. Or if you are feeling um, the back pain or pelvic floor symptoms, and you know that you're dealing with the diastasis, I think it is just a little more insight into, Hey, my body's having a bit of trouble. Like there's some strategy that I'm using that really isn't quite working for me. So trying to figure out like what is actually going on there, um, is probably the most helpful thing to do. Yeah. And that's really nice because I think I've probably seen fair amount of information out there about, for example, lower back pain and diastasis and, like you said, it's probably a bit of a whole body issue. And that's nice because it means you don't have to feel overwhelmed in having to tackle these 
many, many separate little things that you're experiencing, like your back pain and the diastasis and this, because actually there's probably a slightly more collective change that you can make Mm -hmm. to your whole system. Like, for example, maybe how you're breathing with some of your exercises that will actually probably help with all of them. So I, I think that's actually a really nice way of looking at it and it's really useful for people to know as well um so before we're gonna we're gonna dive into the kind of I really like that whole body problem because I want to ask you more about you know how we can maybe modify exercises and get that deep core um activated but before we do because I think it's we often see unfortunately the lens that we maybe see things through if we're like looking on the internet at diastasis it's about a lot of the things that can make it worse, um, mm-hmm. you know, rather than maybe such a positive conversation about how we can be empowered to like help um, manage some of that toning, for example, if we're having it. Mm-hmm. So can we make our diastasis worse? And if so, what are the things that we may be doing that would play into either making it worse or maybe just not allowing it to recover? Maybe some things for us to avoid um, if we see this coning, if it's something that we've we've noticed. Yeah, I think it would be helpful just to divide it into pregnancy and postpartum because there's just slightly different considerations for both. So during pregnancy, well, let me go ahead and say this for both times. Yes you can make it worse. You definitely, definitely can make it worse. Now during pregnancy, um, we want to keep in mind that the way we are going to make it worse during pregnancy is by continuing to stress and overload that system, that fascia over and over and over and over again. So we want to keep this in mind that, and I know we'll kind of like go a little bit more, uh, in depth with this, but, you, the point of least resistance during pregnancy is your abdomen period. Okay. So every time you breathe during pregnancy, pressure is going out the front because all of those muscles are stretched out. Like just that is the point of path of least resistance. Okay. Now, if you go into a workout and continually during your workout, you are Uh, having increased pressure pushing out on that linea alba over and over and over again. And I mean that this is the strategy that you're continually using for months at a time. Yes, you can make your diastasis worse. I'm not saying 100% you're going to make it worse, but yes, you can make it worse because you are putting more strain and more stress on a system that is already under lots of strain and stress, not only during workouts, but like 24 hours a day, 24 seven, that system is having to deal with breath, which is like constant pressure coming in and out of the abdomen, so to speak. Now, what you can do during pregnancy, which I think a lot of people don't understand, is that you should work your core. (laughs) Like a lot of people think, oh, I can't do anything with my core during pregnancy because I'm going to hurt it. No, that's quite the opposite. You need to figure out ways to continue to load that tissue in a way that it will tolerate because we want to continue to stimulate it, even though, yes, it's getting stretched out. Like you're kind of playing a losing game, so to speak. But what I always like to tell my athletes is that what we are trying to do is to keep that needle from moving as far away from our baseline as possible. It's going to move away from the baseline. 
that is going to happen. There's nothing we can do during pregnancy that will keep that core strength uh, needle right at baseline. But if we continue to load in ways that are supportive and don't overstress or overstrain, then we can keep the needle from moving like way far away from the baseline. So postpartum, the thing we want to keep in mind here is that Yes, you can still make your diastasis worse postpartum. So let's say you came out of pregnancy and, um, you know, you checked it like four to six weeks and you have a four finger diastasis and then you go to some workout classes or you jump right back into climbing or, you know, whatever the case is. And then you're just kind of like curious and you check a little while later and you're like, oh my God, now it's like, you know, it's still four fingers or now it's a little bit wider. I don't understand why is this happening? It's likely because you have not laid a really good foundation for your breath work. And also because too much strain on the system too soon can make it worse because that tissue is still very vulnerable, especially during those first kind of, I would even say almost six months postpartum, you have to make sure that you are giving it stimulus in a way that it can handle. If you're giving it too much stimulus, you're just going to make it worse. Um, and we're talking about stimulus, not only during your workouts, but also with breathing, um, because that is, like I said, like the foundation and honestly, the most important part, because we work out maybe, I don't know, maybe an hour a day, right? Very little amount of time compared to we're breathing 24 hours a day. We take 20,000 plus breaths a day. And if we're constantly belly breathing, which is what tends to happen postpartum again, just because that is a very natural thing for your body to do path of least resistance. All of those muscles are super stretched out. Um, if we continue to belly breathe, then we continue to kind of put a little more pressure out on that system. And then kind of getting a, hopefully I'm not like taking this too far, but a little bit more in depth is that when we belly breathe, we're really never getting those TAs, which are the deep core muscles firing like they should. So they're an anticipatory muscle. So every time you, even before you go to like reach for a hold, your TAs fire and you don't even think about it. You don't know that it's happening, but after pregnancy, right? Like that firing isn't as quick to happen. And the, the muscles just don't have as much tension as they once did. So we, when we're not getting that anticipatory firing or it's not happening with as much tension as it should, we, we kind of compromise the ability of the TA muscles to work. And then also when we're not getting these, these really good inhales, like with tension as our core musculature should have, we never get this eccentric lengthening of the TA and that should happen on each inhale. We should be getting this eccentric lengthening. But if we're just constantly always belly breathing, it's not going to happen. We don't get the eccentric lengthening. We don't get the loading of the fascia of the connective tissue. So it, it becomes very hard to heal. And then it can just kind of continue to get worse. So hopefully that all makes sense. I feel like I just kind of like buzzed around a bunch of things, but. Oh no, that absolutely makes sense. And I think that distinction is really nice between pregnancy and postpartum where during pregnancy, actually, if you continue to strength train and strength train as your body is changing right because mm -hmm. yes things aren't maybe leaning in your favor to maintain it and your absolute baseline of core strength because right. the muscles are becoming more stretched and we know that they are yeah. a bit weaker but yeah. 
you can strength train in this new range and it will help your body adapt to this new internal load that it's having to deal with that is this growing baby. And then I guess the distinction between that and postpartum is very much one of after the baby, like you do need some rest an actual recovery. It will heal to some extent on its own and you want to respect that. But then it, I sort of want to maybe park pregnancy and exercise modification for just a little bit and really focus perhaps on some of the breath work that people can do um, postpartum because I think maybe one of the risks that people can run into here is they don't do that and then like you said they go back to an exercise class back to climbing they're so immersed in this activity that they love doing Mm -hmm. that breathing connecting with the breath is a bit like it's you know it's a little bit pushed to one side so I think reconnecting with that as you often say is such an important thing to do and and it is something you can do earlier on when actually just a lot of healing is happening as well so do you just want to actually jump in there and give I guess almost like an exercise when when what is it something we can do to get this kind of deep core activation with our breathing yeah yeah and I totally understand I mean breathing is kind of boring a lot of people think it is um but my hope is that just, you know, by you and I having more conversations about it and whatnot, that we really can recognize the importance of it. But I, for one, I mean, I am like, I am very busy. So I understand when people talk about being busy, don't have time for the breathing. Yeah, I I get it. I totally, totally get it. But even just bringing awareness to the breath can be really huge as well. It doesn't mean that you have to lay on the ground for an hour a day and breathe. Like nobody has time for that. Um, I know I certainly don't. So keeping in mind that, and then I'll come back to like an exercise for how to do it, but just that when you are able to reconnect with your breath in an intentional way, then you are reconnecting with your core musculature in an intentional way. And then you are also setting yourself up for success because what we're doing with this breathing is essentially we we're trying to achieve diaphragmatic breathing and probably people have heard of this. Um, so diaphragmatic breathing is not belly breathing just to like be very clear about that. Um, I don't know a lot about belly breathing besides like the reasons you shouldn't do it. I'm sure that there are perhaps maybe some different uses for it that other people have. But um, as a pregnant or postpartum person listening to this, you should not be doing belly breathing. (laughs) Um, Okay, so diaphragmatic breathing just means that we're getting a full excursion of the diaphragm. The diaphragm is a muscle that separates the thoracic and abdominal cavity, and it is in uh, the bottom of your ribs. Full excursion just means that the diaphragm comes down on an inhale and comes up on an exhale. The reason this is important is because on that inhale, as the diaphragm comes down, you are getting a 360 degree expansion of your rib cage. So that is what we want moving the most during an inhale are the ribs front to back and side to side. If we are getting the belly moving most during an inhale, then the ribs, they they aren't moving as much. So this kind of ties back into that whole pressure sort of conundrum that we were talking about before. So I think one of um, the best ways to just kind of like feel this happening and understanding a little bit more about what should be going on is um, you can just use your own hands. So what we're going to do is we're going to put 
you can just sit up. Like if you're driving in your car, or you're sitting at your desk right now. I just want you to kind of like sit up straight just a little bit. So make sure you're not slumped over. And then I want you to take your pelvis and you're just going to like rock it underneath you ever so slightly. So I just want to make sure that your pelvis isn't dumping forward. So now you're just kind of in a more stacked position, which just means that we have the rib cage stacked a bit over the pelvis. You can take your right hand and you're going to put it on your chest. And um, so mine is like right on top of my sternum, right underneath my neck. I have my palm pressed against my chest. Now I'm going to take my left hand and I'm going to put it underneath my belly button. So my palm is over uh, my low belly, right above my pelvis. What we're going to try and do is we're going to try and find a bit of tension in the low belly and see if that makes a difference in the way that our rib cage uh, that is touching our right hand moves. So we're seeing if we can get a little more expansion in the front. And so this is just anterior expansion here. So the way we need to do this is we want to think about inhales through the nose and exhales through the mouth. Okay, your exhales need to be very long, long, soft, sighing exhales, longer than probably you want them to be. The more we exhale, the more we can inhale. So I'm going to coach you through it, but just those are like the basic premises to keep in mind. Okay, so you want to just kind of take like a, like, get ready. <laughs> Here we go, sort of. <laughs> okay, so first thing we're going to do is inhale through the nose. And then I want you to open your mouth and you're going to exhale and just kind of notice what you feel. You're not trying to do anything super intentional right now. Notice what you feel in your lower hand. Notice what you feel in your upper hand. So exhale a little more. I want you to do that one more time. So you're going to inhale through your nose. And then you're going to exhale. This next time, what I want to happen on your inhale is really focus on that top hand and what do you feel there? Now I want you to exhale and as you exhale, try and pull your low belly away from your bottom hand. I don't want your low belly to push into your bottom hand. Just pull it away, pull it away. At the end of your exhale, keep that tension that you found and now I want you to inhale again. Now you're going to exhale, low belly, pull away, pull away, pull away again. And I want you to keep some of that tension in your low belly and then inhale one more time. And you can stop. So what you should have ideally felt is that as you kept more tension in your low belly, you were able to let your ribs kind of inflate underneath your hand more because what we've done is we've kind of changed the the path of least resistance we've told our body hey keep some tension down here and move that pressure up there <laughs> we want it to go out through um the the ribs so anterior to posterior and laterally just 360 degrees so that's just a really I mean, I like that. You can do it really simply at your desk. You can also do it laying on the ground. Um, but I even use that with my moms. They can practice while they're nursing their baby. So, I mean, you can do it while you're driving in your car. It doesn't have to be this whole production. Like you could even just kind of do it while you're standing and waiting for your water to boil for your tea or anything like that. Um, so did that, did you find that helpful? Yeah, yeah. And something I'll just say is that I've done this like a few times when I have been chatting with you and when I've been just kind of learning about this stuff myself. And 
I think it's, you know, it doesn't, you, you can't just connect all the dots straight away. But when you do feel it, and if you really remember some of the cues that you just talked about, like if someone was listening, you don't need to remember all the mechanisms of breathing and where the diaphragm is and all of those details that you do talk about so well. But I think if you just really try and focus in on the cues, like pulling your lower abdomen away from your hand, steaming up the mirror, like these sorts of things, I think from a practical standpoint of integrating it into your day-to-day, those for me really help me to feel what I'm looking for. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, like like the science of it and what's happening, all the mechanics, it's super interesting. But oh, I think but- if anyone's gonna, gonna write anything down, <laughs> I just think those, <clears throat> those cues just help so much. Yeah, I mean, that stuff is really cool and you need to understand that to be able to teach it, but you do not need to understand that to be able to do it. Not yeah. at all. The people that I'm working with, they may be like, I don't know, you know, I, I know like why I'm doing this because it's important for breathing, but they don't, you know, they can't regurgitate yeah. all of that stuff back to me. The way I love to think about it that I think is just a really great, simple um, explanation is stretching from the inside. So like, it should feel like your pecs, your back, like the, the sides of your body, the stretch from the inside as those ribs expand. Yeah. And that's where you did, you did mention the eccentric sort of loading of your mm-hmm. um, deep core muscles kind of with mm-hmm. breathing before. And I guess that's where that whole, people probably don't think of it so much as in concentric and eccentric, maybe mm-hmm. when they're doing these exercises, but you're totally right. And when you think of it, of maybe when you almost imagine it from the inside out, then I think you can get that sort of um, feeling of like, oh yeah, there is a concentric action there and there is an eccentric as well. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe it helps relate it to people's exercise mind in the way that they often think about exercises. Um, so that's obviously like a breathing exercise in itself, but I guess probably extrapolating out from that kind of earlier postpartum phase or maybe bringing sort of pregnancy back in as well and kind of managing pressure on that linear alba um, with breathing. Do you just want to sort of, um, yeah, take us on that kind of pathway from breathing as an exercise in itself to mm-hmm. breathing as more of a consideration within the exercises that we are doing anyway? Yeah, yeah. So when we are talking about pregnancy. So it's going to be kind of almost the reverse of postpartum. So during early pregnancy, the most important thing that you can do is get a good strategy during those. Honestly, most of the time, those first three months, you don't really have to change anything as far as the core exercises that you're doing. Like if you're someone who's really likes to do hanging core things, go for it, but just make sure you have a good strategy while you're doing this. And that just means that long exhale where you can feel, it should feel like a zipping up from the bottom of your pelvis up to your belly button. You don't want a crunching down. You want a zipping up feeling and you don't want the abdomen basically changing shape. You want it to remain pretty flat, um, like while you're doing these things. So that's the best thing you can do during those kind of first few months of pregnancy. Now, as a pregnancy progresses and you start to notice, um, that you cannot control that pressure anymore. And you're going to notice that either by those visual signs of the coning or doming, or you may also just notice a feeling of like, you can't create tension in your abs, or it just really feels they're like pulling apart when 
you go to do something like those would all be red flags like, hey, this may be a little too intense right now. You can try to implement a better strategy as in like really try and get a good, good exhale, be more intentional. And sometimes that'll fix it up and you can, you know, continue with the same intensity. But if it doesn't, then it's time to modify the exercise. It does not mean that you have to quit. It means that you just need to uh, just dial back the intensity just a bit. Um, so that may mean instead of doing planks with your hands and feet on the ground, you move your hands up a little bit. You can still keep doing the planks, but you just need to do them in a way where you are really sure that you are controlling the intensity such that you can um, keep that pressure regulated. Now, during postpartum, it's kind of like the reverse. We have to start with low intensity and then very intentionally, um, ramp it up. So postpartum, you need to make sure like just laying on the ground, can you fire deep core with an exhale? That is what you want to think about. You're just going to put, you're going to lay on your back on the ground you or you can lay on your side. Some people, it's a little bit easier for them that way, but you're just going to put hands, your palms on your low belly. And during an exhale, I want you to see like, can you find that connection again of the belly pulling away from the hand without you crunching down? We don't want that crunching down because that's those rectus muscles um, and we don't want them to become like over dominant and they can also become really tight. So we kind of want to let them stay really nice and lengthen. And we just want those, the kind of low TAs firing and creating that connection again. So once you create that connection on the ground, you can start creating that connection in like literally everything you do. Um, and six weeks is <laughs> the six weeks of like returning to exercise postpartum is in my mind, kind of silly because you're going to return to exercise, not in a prescribed workout way, but you're going to be squatting to go to the toilet. You're going to be bending over to pick up your baby. Like you're going to be doing all of these quote unquote functional movements. So why don't you go ahead and learn how to like start up training your core while you're doing these things. And so once you get that connection going and like really great diaphragmatic breathing on the ground, then go ahead. Like when you pick up your baby, exhale, find some TA, like it can be as simple as that. Um, and then you have to start loading the core. So there's, you know, we have to find like the, the Goldilocks, the porridge just right, basically, because if we do too much too soon, it can cause that worsening or inability to heal. And if we don't do enough, then there is no loading that happenings. And it's kind of like we just hit a plateau where nothing is getting stronger. So we just have to like, based off of what your body can handle, we give it a little more stimulus and a little more and a little more and a little more. I think one thing that's also really important for people to understand is that there are, so you can see this coning, right? Which is the line down the linea alba. And <clears throat> so like for me, I'm 10 months postpartum right now uh, from baby number three. Now, as you have more children, it becomes the process usually just takes a little bit longer for like the muscles to come back together for them to regain their tension, strength, integrity, et cetera. So that's just something to keep in mind if like you're a first time mom versus a second, third, et cetera time mom. But when we see the coning, 
if you can get somebody to touch it for you or you touch it yourself, if it is a soft coning, that's generally a little better and not quite as worrisome as a hard coning. So like I know for me, I've just started integrating some just higher intensity kind of hanging core stuff. And I get some soft coning while I'm doing that right now. Some people may say, oh my God, she's coning, make her stop. It's dangerous, but I don't, it's not. It's not <laughs> because I know my body better than anybody else. And I know what that connection with my TA feels like. And I am not losing that in between like these, uh, these reps that I'm doing. It's also a really soft coning. So that means like, is there some pressure coming out? Yes, there is. May there always be? Yeah. There may always be, but I'm also not in that more vulnerable stage of healing. And I also know that I have a good connection. So like, it may be that I'm able to do these exercises for a little while. And I do notice like, oh, hey, I'm not like getting quite as much. Or if it was something that I was truly worried about, I could do some really like targeted exercises at like bringing the rectus muscle bellies back together. But I just don't care that much. <laughs> so anyway, I think it's just like important to keep in mind, like if you do feel that so if you were to press on that ridge and it's hard, like it feels like kind of like a balloon, it's not squishy, right? Then that is a sign that that's really, that's not what we want. More of like that soft coning, it's likely okay. And we can just, you know, just kind of like monitor and keep going. Um, but yeah, that is like one important thing uh, for people to know. Yeah, because that's like a sign of what sort of magnitude of pressure that linear Albert is having to take outwardly mm -hmm. whilst you're doing whatever exercise it is that you are doing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's really awesome. And it's kind of great, I think, with all of this stuff and the approach that you take. There is no like, oh, this exercise is the one because people love different things in climbing and people like to support their style of climbing that they love with the exercises that work best for them and I think it's nice when you take this approach of monitoring modifying breathing because when you're pregnant once it starts to become you know maybe you're you've a bit bigger and you maybe do need to consider diastasis like you said you don't have to change everything you're doing you just have to bring that awareness of the breath maybe make some modifications and then kind of reverse engineer that back out the other side it's not like there is this exercise that you have to do because climbers don't like that climbers love the climbing they like doing and they want to support that with the exercises that they feel work really well for them um so yeah that's really cool yeah one thing that Oh, sorry. I was just going to say, like, I know one thing that's really big with a lot of the athletes I work with is pull-ups. And some of them are like hell bent, like, oh, I will be doing pull-ups at 40 weeks. So, you know, just always considering the like can versus should. Um, it, can you do it? Yeah, you can. You can. I mean, I'm not going to lie. I think I was like 38 weeks, maybe pregnant with Mason. And I just like hopped on the bar and just like did a few pull-ups just to be like, okay, I did that. Like, that's badass. Like I did that, <laughs> but was it a great idea? No, probably not. But like that one time doing those pull-ups did not, that's not the reason. Like I'm still having a little bit of coning right now. Um, but now had I continue to do those multiple times a week over the entire course of my pregnancy, I definitely could have made my diastasis 
worse. So we can still do things like, you know, from the strict pull-ups, you can put your toes on a box or then you can, I loved doing um, suspension rows like during my pregnancy. And I think that those translate really well to climbing, honestly. Um, and so just knowing that there's still ways that you can kind of like get that fix that you're looking for, like things can still feel hard. doesn't mean that, oh, well, like I have, you know, all these core considerations, everything's got to be like RPE three. Like that's a disnomer or misnomer. We don't, it doesn't have to be that way. It can still be quite hard, but you're still being respectful and just giving that tissue like the uh, support that it needs while still doing things that challenge you. Yeah. Modification of an exercise doesn't have to be, oh, well, we'll just make it really easy. It just Mm -hmm. has to be something where managing that pressure is much easier. And so you're not having that kind of yeah visual side maybe of um yeah coning um over and over again like you said if someone if you have kind of one session and you complete the session and then maybe the next session you notice some you probably don't need to worry that maybe last session you had it too but it might be worth people checking in with now and again like either with a partner or you know in just whatever way is like easy to see Mm -hmm. Um, so you mentioned pull-ups one thing I did want to ask you about because it is very climbing specific as much as there is more and more information now for people to get back to running get back to exercise which is great hanging is very much something we do in climbing training and that like you said you mentioned pull-ups but say hanging on the fingerboard either into you know as you're kind of moving through pregnancy or getting back to it after you've had your baby with regards to diastasis what are your thoughts on maybe some of the steps either like not so much a checklist but you know maybe the steps that say oh yes I'm ready to do this with respect to diastasis yeah so I think first step is you need to be able to connect with your deep core laying on the ground like we need to be able to do it in a way that is very low demand before we start asking it to do something in a higher demand state so that would be my like baseline you have to do that um I don't normally say like well you know it, it you have to check this box and that box and that box because it just really it really depends and one of the really amazing things about climbers is they can be, kind of shitty at some things, but quite good at other things that don't really make sense, but that's okay. Like, you know, there, you would think like, I don't know, I guess like push-ups maybe is a good one, right? Like where like some climbers can bust out all of these pull-ups and then they go to do push-ups and you're like, oh, that's okay. <laughs> we might want to work on that a little bit. So um, I think that it's just important to remember, like, what are the pieces that have to be in line? to make sure that we are not stressing the diastasis too much. Number one, you have to be able to activate TBA. Number two, you need to be able to get your ribs down postpartum. So that's another thing is that we have this rib flare after pregnancy. And it's just because that the muscles have been elongated and the ribs have actually changed shape a bit. So you have this thing called the infrasternal angle. And that's just the angle, like your xiphoid process is that little, um, bony protrusion at the end of your sternum. And then those low ribs, six through 12, they come out at a bit of an angle from that. And that is your infrasternal angle. So the infrasternal angle, I can't remember. I think it was like 12 degrees. I can't remember the exact um, number with the research, but that it increased during pregnancy. So that's like literally telling us also like, this is it, 
it is a big deal, like the, the shape of the rib cage and the diaphragm moving, the breathing, et cetera. But we have to learn how to get those lower ribs to kind of come back down and in. So um, during exhales, the, the obliques actually kind of like pull downwards and inwards on the, the ribs. And we need this sort of internal external rotation of the actual rib cage during breathing. But all that to say, you want to be able to lay down and feel your deep core zip up. You also want to be able to lay down. And if you put your hands on either side of those lower ribs, as you exhale, you should be able to feel them essentially like melt down your sides without your chest coming down or without your chest feeling like it's crunching up because we don't want that like chest sinking. We just want the ribs kind of melting down. That means that you could get on a, like on the fingerboard and get in a good position. The other thing we have to keep in mind here that can kind of get a little bit more into the weeds. And I think this is just something that you need to look at, but doesn't necessarily have to be a hard stop is your overhead mobility. A lot of times we're lacking overhead mobility postpartum because the shape of the rib cage has changed. And then we go to lift our hands over our heads. We get this flaring of the ribs and we get in an extension of the abdomen to be able to get our hands over our head. I don't think that you need to have this like perfect overhead mobility to get on the hangboard again, but I do think you have to keep it in mind and overhead mobility. Um, I'm sure as you know, it's not something that's going to change overnight. Like you just kind of keep working at these things. But so those are like three components to really consider the deep core ribs down. So addressing the rib flare and the overhead mobility and those things all kind of go hand in hand. When you get on the hangboard for the first time, or let's say you're just like wanting to get on a bar and hang, not even the fingerboard, you want to get in a stacked position. So that just means having your pelvis underneath your rib cage. A lot of times you'll see, um, like when we go to do pull-ups or hangboard that people will cross their feet and they put them behind them, right? And their pelvis is kind of dumped forward. There's nothing wrong with this except postpartum or during pregnancy, because it just puts the whole abdomen into more extension. And we don't need more extension. We don't need the pelvis dumping forward anymore during that time. So what I would do is get like a little box or stool or something and have it. So your knees are at 90 degrees in front of you. So it almost looks like you're sitting in a chair, except you're hanging from the board. That way you're going to get in that really nice stacked position. You have a little bit more of a posterior tilt to your pelvis, which just means you can recruit a little bit more of that deep core musculature. So it's pretty cool because you can actually like strengthen your core while you're on the hangboard, which like, I know someone who's very pressed for time. Like I need that. I need things that do two things at one time. So that would be kind of like just making sure when you get back on the hangboard or any sort of hanging, you need to start in that stacked position. And then you can just increase the intensity of whatever it is you're doing as you are strong enough and feel able and it feels good. Um, it's just kind of how you go about that. Yeah, yeah. And that's really um, nice to have that kind of flow through the progression to get back to hanging. One thing I'll just kind of, um, you did mention it, but I will emphasize um, with the climbers that I've worked with who are getting back into it after having a baby, I think because connecting with your breath and getting that deep core activation and all that, it takes focus. You know, you do have to concentrate on it. I what I have found useful and people have said, you know, has definitely helped is 
do just get back on a bar or the jugs. You don't need to work your fingers maybe straight away. Like make it simple. Just be trying to get back to hanging before get back getting back to working your fingers. And this is not to say that you can't also work your fingers because now, you know, loads of us have these pickup blocks, like something mm-hmm. where you can you can provide that stimulus to your grip without having to complicate it and think about your core and I know this is something that a number of climates have done uh you know kind of later on in pregnancy as well Mm -hmm. when as you mentioned before you could keep hanging and use something to support your feet uh, in front of you like you've just said or you might decide that actually you can step away from that for now and you can use like a, a pickup edge and I think almost separating out those things whilst you're trying to connect with that deep core and get that stacked position can just simplify it for your brain. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I know that (laughs) for the athletes that I work with, I basically like, I like to use some integrated strength and finger training with them. And I just, during their pregnancy, I just tell them, you tell me when this doesn't feel good anymore. And nine times out of 10 at a certain point, they're like, I'm not feeling this anymore. I'm just going to use my pinch blocks now. And so it it does kind of get like self-limiting where you're just like, (laughs) it feels like a chore. You're just like, I don't want to get on this. Like, I don't want to put my hands over my head and like hang because your weight is changing. So you have to kind of like take that into account and all of this stuff. So I just kind of usually leave it by feel as in when to stop hanging. And then also they're keeping in mind, like, listen, there's really kind of no point if you're not able to control like your core, then it's just best to do the ones by your side. Because the whole point of this is for fingers. Like, so we just kind of like, you know, like to keep that in mind, but yeah, most of the time people will just say it doesn't feel good anymore. I just don't want to do it. So that's a sign. Okay. We'll just change it. Yeah. And it's nice to know that people can probably trust that, you know, they can probably uh, (laughs) lean into that rather than necessarily waiting for some certain week that Mm -hmm. says that you should definitely now use a pickup edge. Um, (laughs) I don't think anyone knows what week that is. Um, So one of the other um, posts that I have seen from you is where um, you're sort of a yeah, I don't know, you're you're on the floor, I think you're doing like loads of twisting crunches or something like that. And it's, you're kind of just laughing at, I'm doing quote marks here, all that core you used to do. And the reason I bring this up is that when we look online about diastasis and we're thinking about everything you've just talked about, kind of managing that pressure, you've mentioned quite a few times about not, you know, sort of crunching forwards and Mm -hmm. instead trying to have that stacked position you know kind of um your your pelvis there just kind of beneath your ribs and something that I hear from a lot of people um is that oh you know they really want to get back to their core training and um I know that we said you know people can enjoy the exercises they enjoy but I also think that some people are a little misinformed maybe isn't the word but they maybe don't have a totally full kind of picture of what core training for climbing looks like. You know, they they kind of think about crunches or some core workout they used to follow off YouTube from about like 15 years ago. I don't know. <laughs> um, and so I think that the problem with that is that if they still have that diastasis and don't feel like they can do these core exercises that they once did, their mm-hmm. crunch workout on the floor, they then don't know what they could replace that with that could also be really good for their 
tension on the wall than climbing, which I guess is what we as climbers are really interested in. So yeah, I don't know, maybe just give your kind of take on that and some of those exercises that people might actually be able to do and really benefit from, even if they can't do their classic core workout that they used to Mm -hmm. do pre-pregnancy because that is putting too much pressure on their midline with their diastasis. Yeah. So I love it that you mentioned that post because this is, was just like, I think it's hilarious when I think back of all the, all that core I used to do because, oh, I was the queen of it. I would, I had these five minute timers and they would go in 30 second increments. And I'd be like, this is my five minute core routine. And I would do, you know, just your like crunches and then Russian twist and leg lifts and like, just like all the core stuff that you think of people doing. And it was like, no workout was complete without a core circuit at the end. Like that was what had to happen. And the funny thing about it is, is that the reason I used to do a lot of that core stuff was for like aesthetics, because I was, you know, like, I think muscles are really pretty. And I was like, I, you know, I want some more core muscles, whatever. I want them to show more, get bigger. And they never did. Like it never really made a difference for me. And then once I actually just started picking up heavier stuff and I quit doing core stuff. It actually made a difference aesthetically. That's just kind of an aside, but it's almost like where that pose kind of stemmed from, right? Is that we have for a lot of, I think a lot of us have the wrong idea when it comes to core. I am not saying that targeted core exercises are not good and not of value. That's not what I'm saying. But what I'm saying is that as a climber, if you can't, if you don't have a heavy hinge squat, push and pull somewhere in your training, all the core training in the world is, is just not going to help that much because when you are training these compound movement patterns, which is like the deadlift, the squat, pull up, overhead press, push up, etc. You're strengthening your whole body at one time. And as we know, climbing is a total body strength sport. Like we don't just use our core while we're climbing. If you think about, you know, you're climbing something steep, you need to use your, your toes are pulling you in. And then you've got a contraction in your calf and your hamstring and your glute, like that whole posterior chain is working. And yes, your core is working, but you're going to have the biggest bang for your buck when you do um, compound strength movements period. Now, if someone is like, well, like, yeah. So you were saying like, you know, they used to have a core routine, but now they feel like they shouldn't do that because they're postpartum or they have a diastasis. I would look at working in some compound strength movements because those are going to help you learn to manage pressure, um, really well. Like if you can manage pressure during a deadlift, you can probably manage it during anything. (laughs) And then you're also just, as we've talked about diastasis is a total body problem. So we can't just look at the core musculature. We need to look at like the entire kinetic chain a lot of times. So we need to train it up with those compound movements. Now, the one thing I will say is that I, you know, if you want to do a bit of core because you feel like that is maybe the weakest link, go for it, but please make sure you're doing it in a way that is actually effective. Like, 
I think I forget sometimes because this is what I do of a lot of the kind of stuff that's still out there. Like I saw a group in the gym last night and they were doing some core together after their session and they were doing, you know, like leg lifts and whatnot. And it was like, I just saw that like doming and like almost every single one of them, just like the whole abs popping out. And, you know, I'm not going to say anything because they're just like, you know, they're doing their thing and they're having a good time. But it's like, I almost just wish like, I don't know that they could just know like, Hey, if you did six reps where you actually got all of those muscles working versus just this one muscle working, it's going to be way better than that. Like 50 reps you did of like just this one muscle working. Um, and then, you know, anything where you're like, they were doing kind of like some bird dog type things, but their whole back is moving while they're doing it. I'm like, ah, that's not like really getting at like those anticipatory, like multifidi and TBA that are like supposed to be stabilizing you while you're doing these things. So I would just make sure that if you are like, you really just want to kind of keep doing your core stuff because you love it, do it. There's nothing wrong with it, but just make sure you're doing it in a really intentional way that is going to give you a lot of benefit while you're doing it. Um, the one thing that you can really do to make a difference in diastasis, if you're like, okay, I'm not going to do those regular core routines and I don't know about all that compound strength stuff, but I, I would be willing to do one thing, do rotational movements because the connective tissue in the linea alba is such that it's like cross hatched sort of. So, because you think about it, it helps you transfer load from one side of your body to the other. So when we think about kind of wanting to strengthen that connection, anything we do where like you can think of like the chops sort of where you go from like a high to low chop or even a rotational medicine ball throw, something of that nature. Anything where you're kind of like rotating through that torso is going to be really helpful because it actually follows the lines of like how that collagen is laid down. So that is one thing that if you're like, I don't know, that one big takeaway that you could uh, have from this is that any sort of rotational movements are really, really good for helping to train up or uh, kind of help correct a diastasis. Yeah. And they're really good for climbing as well, because we do a lot of twisting. <laughs> and I guess if that is good for training the diastasis, perhaps the logic follows that it will also really help the strength kind of a deficit that maybe having a diastasis might, you know, you might be feeling on the wall. Um, and yeah, I think that was really good. I, I like, core training and I like compound movements and I think they both have their place like you said but I do think from what I've seen is that if you can start with some compound movements because they allow you to manage pressure easily and they're so they're so easy to progressively overload because you're holding a weight and it can start at two kilos and it can you know gradually build up to five and so on and so on I think that is so valuable when, as you said, when you're doing leg raises and it's, you I mean, your legs just weigh whatever your legs weigh and you, you know, you're just kind of, um, unless you're being really intentional with um, the muscles that you're using and the tempo and controlling the movement, that could be a harder place to start, especially if you have a diastasis. But I think it has a place because I've also seen a lot of climbers now that very much lean on compound training and they actually on quite poor at some quite basic core exercises in terms of controlling them um such that I'm like well I think for you your level as a climber you would benefit from getting mm -hmm. this to, to being able to do these exercises at this level um oh, but yeah God. I think those twisting ones are great you know if people even just have 
a light resistance band to start with and they fix it to a point and they can kind of chop it across their body as you said mm-hmm. um yeah I think that's a, I really enjoy that as a core exercise kind of no matter what anyway oh yeah and it can be really fun like throwing the ball too and that's like a great like stress reliever one I love that one for like you could like build strength with the chop with like a cable or you know a dumbbell but then like looking for more power like if you want to segue into more a uh, power focus kind of part of your program using the chop or I'm sorry the uh, rotational ball throw but then also just to kind of like speak to what you said about still needing the core like I yes a hundred percent but like I just kind of think of it as like accessory if that makes sense where it's like okay so we have to you know make sure we get like all these major boxes checked for the major strength movements and then let's look at you know, for postpartum, like what I do is like glutes and core, like they do have a little, the athletes I work with have a little circuit at the end of their training, uh, because those are two areas postpartum that need more work. So it's like, I make sure they get in all of the, you know, kind of like major movements that I think are important. And then we do a little bit of glute and core, which it's like, I don't know, kind of fun sometimes like old school throwback of like abs and ass. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) You know, uh, but it, it, they do, they need more mm. work or like, you know, you might find like, if you're like, I don't know, you're like really working on a project that had a ton of underclings or something. So you need to do more bicep work, right? Like anything that we know, like, Hey, this is kind of like a weakest link. We can train it up with more accessory stuff. But like you were saying, it's just, if you only ever do the accessory things, then you're, you're just missing out on a lot of opportunity for a lot more strength and success, um, with those bigger body movements. Yeah. And one thing I will just say, and I noticed this across the board with climbers, this is not just uh, postpartum climbers, but I imagine it would carry across is that if you are doing certain core training exercises, like the ones on the floor, like the leg raises or like a hollow body type hold or a plank or just whatever it is, if you notice that your your upper traps, maybe, you know, it's sort of more muscles around your your neck, like much higher up if they're feeling worked or tweaky or a bit weird or it's not feeling nice, you may, it may be quite a good sign that you are not recruiting the muscles that you are hoping to in the workout. Um, I think as climbers, we can have quite that high center of gravity. We can tend to really tense muscles up, you know, in a, in our arms, around our neck, in our face, when actually what we're trying to get is our deep core to turn on so that could be just um an interesting thing to kind of monitor just to to help you kind of gauge whether you're working what you want to be working oh yeah I think that could be a whole other podcast because I can like go way down the rabbit hole of like breathing and rib cage rib cage shape change and stuff but like yeah the lats can be quite the bully uh, with climbers because they're very well developed and it can just really kind of contribute to, um, just like imbalances. Yeah. To kind of just keep it on the surface for now, but for sure, if you're noticing you always, like after you do planks, like your neck always feels tight, then you're probably shrugging those shoulders way up into your ears. And you're probably, so if you think about what happens when you kind of pull your shoulders up to your ears, you can already feel your chest kind of come down and in, 
right? Like instead of your chest, just staying wide. That's what I like to think about. Like chest stays wide, chest stays wide. And if your chest stays wide, it's kind of hard to like pull your shoulders up into your ears. Um, but with that chest coming down and in, a lot of times we get this like really pulling um, down with um, it just something times people refer to it as like rectus dominant, where it's just those kind of first two to three uh, rectus muscle bellies, they pull too much down. And you can, that can like be because of the lats, or it could be chicken or egg, like who knows. Um, But we can get that real kind of rectus dominant where it's like pulling down. And when it pulls and cinches down, sometimes you may even notice people will have kind of like this line that's like a little bit above their belly button. And then the lower belly kind of pooches out just a little bit, but they're almost like pulled down up into that line. And then everything just kind of like, isn't, it's not the same shape. It's kind of like flat up to there. And they have this kind of like little line and then things pooch out. That's because when you're pulling down with those rectus muscles, those upper traps, everything is like real tight. Then you're pushing out on the rest of the musculature below that, which again, that's like a pressure problem that you need to address with certain things. Um, but yeah, for sure. Like if you're having neck tightness after core stuff, that is something you want to look into. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Maybe keeping that chest open. It's one of those things where it's just a little cue that you can check in with, like, how are the muscles doing? How are my upper traps doing? Are they soft? They should be because I'm not actually (laughs) intending to work them right now. Um, And it might just be one of those things that's like an easy sign that you're not quite distributing pressure evenly within your sort of core cylinder, um, as well as obviously not maybe pushing too much out on that midline. Mm -hmm. And so I basically have one more thing I want to ask Mm -hmm. you, but I will also, if you think there's anything we've not covered, then for sure you could wrap up with that. But that is C-sections and diastasis. Mm -hmm. So I actually do not know uh, this at all. It may not be relevant or it may be. Is there is, of course, um, a longer recovery time. You know, if you have a Mm C-section, you are going to need to give that time to heal. Mm-hmm. Is there any link between that and maybe the healing process for the diastasis that someone might have? Um, and is there any additional information from what you've said here that might apply to those who have had a C-section? So that's a really good question. And I'm not going to say I don't know, but I don't have any specific research that I can draw on. Here's what I would say that regardless, if you have a C-section, we know that you're going to have some diastasis at the time of delivery, whether you have a vaginal birth or you have a C-section. A C-section in itself will not make a diastasis worse. Now, if you do not, if... I mean, I hate to always say like absolutes, but it is reasonable to assume that if you do not do that same sort of process of like gradual overloading, learning how to fire muscles again, et cetera, um, that we would do with a vaginal birth, then yes, we can still make the diastasis worse. Things just get a little more complicated with the C-section, but they don't necessarily change for how we handle the diastasis. With a C-section, we're having to basically recover from pregnancy and from a major abdominal surgery. So it just takes a little more time. So the loading may have to be a bit more gradual because literally like all of the core musculature has 
been cut through. Now it can be a bit, um, harder to recover from in terms of the just kind of like loading capacity because of the linea alba having been having been cut through. So that where is really important to make sure that you you have to load it in very, very intentional progressive ways. It is non-negotiable to be able to heal it. It's just like with the C-section, I feel like it's even more important just because it has an even more compromised structure than before, because you're not only dealing with thinning and widening. Now you're also dealing with a like complete cut, if that makes sense. So any of that like rotation. So, I mean, first of all, is going to be the breath work period, making sure you get the diaphragmatic breathing connection with the deep core ribs down all the things, but then like even looking at that, like rotational stuff to begin with, to start facilitating that transfer of load from one side of the muscles to the other, um, to begin with would be really important. But I mean, I work with C-section moms all the time. And they are just fine. So like, you know, I mean, I don't want to say like any of that to scare anybody. We use basically the same process. Sometimes it just takes a little bit longer because your body's just recovering from more is, you know, kind of like the basic point of the whole thing. Um, I think the only thing that I had to add that I know I'll get a lot of questions about as far as like diastasis and climbing is like, is there anything that I should avoid or shouldn't do with climbing? And so I say like, not really, but that you need to be very honest with yourself about what things are feeling like. So we do know that climbing steeper terrain is going to place more demand on your core. So what I kind of like to equate it to is if you feel like you are having fun climbing and you know, you're climbing these steeper things, you're not holding your breath because that's really important while you're climbing. You just need to just like keep breathing naturally as you would. Um, and that you're not feeling you're like clawing your way through things or like grappling. And it's like this, like major, major effort, sort of like, if that's on steep terrain, it's likely being a little too much on your core. And there's no way you're going to be like, am I like, you know, like, am I coding? You're not, it's like, that's, we're not going to do that (laughs) while we're climbing. But I think like when we're getting into that sort of RP and, and feeling of like really trying hard and just like, it's likely that you're not controlling that pressure well in your core. So just kind of keeping those things in mind and then you know, if you were like climbing, um, out a roof or something, just make sure to like really exhale as you pull through or just really simple things that you can do that just kind of help to give you a little more support for your core. And then one thing that I have loved doing with my athletes that they have really loved doing as well. Um, and you can do this during pregnancy and also early postpartum. It's just some very intentional connection with your deep core and your pelvic floor on the wall before your session. So just use like, you know, maybe like eight to 10 moves or something. So it might take 30 seconds, but like, as you reach to go for another hold, you just exhale and feel that deep core fire and you lift your pelvic floor and then you kind of let it go. And then you reach to the next hold and do the same thing so that you're making sure that you're creating that connection before you start into your actual session. Um, and it helps to number one, just facilitate neuromuscularly. Like, Hey, this is what needs to happen. Like, you know, your brain is like, okay, this is, this is what I need to be doing. And I'm connecting these muscles 
muscles together, et cetera. Um, but it can also just really be a great way to also sort of like strengthen and facilitate good habits and strategies that are supportive and restorative um, and also protective of our pelvic floor and our deep core uh, for climbing during pregnancy or postpartum. Yeah, that's awesome. And I think another one that can be useful for that in a similar way, it doesn't have to be this whole training session. It's like, literally, it's sort of part of the warm up, it just gets you, um, your, you know, you connecting the dots is kind of getting on the wall and walking your feet out, you know, and around into a few different positions, having that tension, but breathing throughout, like you said, not Mm -hmm. sort of having that tension in your core, and then not breathing, but moving your feet around really quickly. (laughs) Yeah. Um, And yeah, I think you're right. I think it's really nice for just teaching your body that and actually say you do that as part of your warm up for every session you have, you get a really good stimulus, you you know, you are going to progress, you can try using some slightly worse footholds and The only other thing as well that I think is to me kind of seems obvious probably because I've done it for so long but if you are say for example during pregnancy and you are on a slightly steeper climb um, and you know actually the correct colored foothold is a little bit too challenging for your core just add a foothold (laughs) you know you can, you can also do what you want. I mean, I do it all the time coming back from injury or, or whatever. It's like, if I want to enjoy this climb and this movement, I often might still try to replicate the movement that the setter has intended, but you can just use a slightly bigger hold or something that's just a bit better for your body right now. And then you can, you know. (laughs) Yeah. I will have to say that you like, changed my like training with like giving me permission to do that because it is crazy how we don't want to give ourselves permission to do things. We're like, Oh no, that's not blue. That's not on. I can't use that. Where it's like, just use the orange one. It's fine. (laughs) And you know, it still feels quite hard or like, it's not like you're just like going to turn a a climb that's supposed to be one grade. You're not going to like bump it down four letter grades by substituting one hold or something like that. So yeah, I think that's like a really, really good point. And I know that has helped me so much when you were like, Joy, just like you can just use like a little intermediate or just use like a little bigger one or something, you know, when we've been talking about some things in my own training. Um, And then I was just going to say too, that you reminded me when you're talking about moving your feet around that I think it's really interesting too, that you can start to notice like when you're doing this connection with your deep core, your pelvic floor is when you exhale, sometimes you, you notice like, oh, I am trying to grip really hard when I do this, where that's where I'm trying to find the tension versus actually being able to like keep this loose grip or like appropriate amount of grip in the hand. Or you might notice like I'm clenching my butt really hard to try and find this deep core connection. So it can also be very great for just like awareness of what other parts of your body do you try to substitute tension for when it actually should be automatically generated by like that deep core pelvic floor. And then also, um, I noticed that like, I've noticed a huge difference in like my own pelvic floor, like pelvic floor symptoms and whatnot, where I just do this like kind of simple connection. Sometimes they make it a bit harder just depending on like what day it is and whatnot. But before my session, it's made a huge difference for me. Um, I actually wish I would have done it like a lot sooner, (laughs) but you know, I don't have a me. (laughs) Well, so that's it's, really, 
<laughs> we're warming up muscles that, like you said, a lot of this, it almost should happen quite automatically. But mm -hmm. if it doesn't, then it can lead to, well, if you're talking about the pelvic floor, certain like symptoms, you know, leaking or whatever. Mm -hmm. And actually, if you can spend a little time kind of waking up what should be quite automatic then maybe yes. you don't have to think about it for the rest of your session which is great. oh yeah no I mean because I like I know for myself like I don't want to be trying a hard boulder problem and thinking about like exhale pelvic floor deep core it's not reasonable like you're not going to do that and if you are then it's not hard enough period like that's just kind of like there are different times for thinking about different things and I know for me like most of the time when I'm coming into the bouldering gym or honestly even my sessions at home like coming in hot in between like, you know, whatever I'm navigating that day. And I have found that taking that sometimes it's two minutes. That's all it is. And I'm either doing some like breathing drills or just very targeted, like literally lifting the pelvic floor with movement, finding some deep core on the wall has made a massive difference for me. Um, yeah, because you know, they say you shouldn't drink like bladder irritants, like caffeine. Well, that's kind of like non-negotiable for me. <laughs> like my sleep is really poor right now. Um, I have two small children, so it is what it is. So it's like, just for me, that's, that's been really, really huge. And it helps to wake up the muscles that sometimes they may have been checked out because I'm sitting at a computer in a slunch posture all day. So like, no, I'm not in this perfect stacked position and just like everything ready to go. So I think like, you know, just kind of keeping in mind that pelvic floor training does not have to look like sitting at your desk or sitting wherever and doing Kegels. Like you can totally mix it up into other things that you want to be doing anyway. Cause I don't want to be sitting around doing a bunch of Kegels. I do think they have their place. That's not what I'm, you know, I'm not saying don't do them. I'm just saying that we can think outside of the box sometimes. Yeah, and I think as climbers, I guess some of this stuff that we've just finished off talking about, they're kind of behaviors that you can integrate into your warm-up. And we do mm -hmm. our warm-up all the time. And so if mm -hmm. we can create some of those habits, we can actually get a really good consistency with some of these things that we feel like we should be doing, but struggle maybe to fit into our day otherwise. Yes, that. <laughs> awesome thank you so much joy i always oh, yeah. love talking to you about this stuff <laughs> so fun we'll do it again sometime soon <laughs> yeah and i will point people towards your instagram so that they can come and find you and maybe look up some of the posts that we talked about today okay. as well as all the other awesome content that you put out there thanks maddie awesome <laughs>